My name is James Hill and welcome to MISC, a podcast series of my interesting snappy chats with successful people about the themes, ideas and experiences that challenge them. Our guest today is Professor Toby Walsh. Toby has been called a rock star of Australia's digital revolution. He is a world leading expert on artificial intelligence, robotics and their ethical application. He is passionate about ensuring that limits are placed on AI for the public good and has played a leading role in campaigning the UN to ban lethal autonomous weapons, aka killer robots. Toby has held research positions at leading global institutions and contributed to countless publications and academic journals. His books include It's Alive, Artificial Intelligence from the Logic Piano to Killer Robots and 2062, The World That AI Made. Toby, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure to join you, James. I must admit, during my uh, research into your books, one of which I'm holding right here, I saw that you have a Hirsch rating of 69. To be completely honest, I didn't know what a Hirsch rating was um, before I looked into it. But I understand it's the metric for evaluating the cumulative impact of an author's scholarly work. And anything over 60 is regarded as as exceptional. I was blown away by the amount of publications you've you've contributed to on the, the topic of artificial intelligence. Well, thank you, but I, I should point out that almost all of those publications are, are written with colleagues around the world, and um, science is a collaborative endeavour, and I've been very fortunate to work with some very smart people. Absolutely, and, and humble as well. <laughs> for, for an AI novice, for an artificial intelligence novice, I wonder if you could briefly tell us what is artificial intelligence and, and how do you define it? Ah, uh, well, that's that's how to make an AI researcher squirm, is it? ask him or her to define what AI is. And there are, there's no really good definition. Um, and actually, most of us try and avoid the question and move on and just try and build interesting artifacts. But if you, if you push myself or most of my colleagues, I think we'll say something along the lines of, well, it's trying to get computers to do what, when humans do them, we think they require intelligence. So that's perceiving the world, reasoning about the world and acting in that world. Um, and um, it's, uh, I think, one of the most profound subjects of the scientific subjects of the of our century to study. Well, for someone that didn't want to answer that question, and I don't blame you, um, I think that's a really useful uh, contextual understanding of it, especially for me. Um, what, what sparked your interest in artificial intelligence and, and robotics as an academic? <laughs> well, I suspect, like many of my colleagues, I, I was drawn into the subject as a young boy reading science fiction and, and watching science fiction movies like um, 2001 and seeing a, a vision of a future, a future that was full of robots and intelligent computers and realizing quite early on that that was possibly something that could be in my lifetime. And that is a future that we're now starting to see. Um, intelligent computers and robots are, not very intelligent, but but nevertheless, slightly intelligent machines are starting to turn up in our lives. And, and that is going to be a, a really profound moment for humanity. Thinking about some questions to ask you, I thought about asking you what, what the first artificially intelligent device you encountered or owned was. <laughs> That's a great question. Actually, I, I should compliment you. I don't think any other interviewer has ever asked me that question before. Um, in the thousands of interviews I've had in the last couple of years. Um, and it's an interesting, it's interesting to think, what, what was that first AI-powered object that I owned? And actually, it's probably what most people listening to this podcast, first AI-powered object that, that you owned, 
and that was my the the satellite navigation system in my car and that contains a little algorithm that tells you where to go tells you what directions to, to do that was originally an algorithm that was developed for the very first autonomous robot built in the 70s in uh, in California shaky the robot who as his name <laughs> suggests was a bit shaky but you had to this this was a fully autonomous robot it made decisions itself you just gave it a task they go and get me a book from the library and it had to work out how to do that task so it, first of all it had to work out how to get to the library how to navigate through the corridors of the laboratory that it was in to find the library and so it was they they came up with an algorithm it's called a star search that is now actually in everyone's satellite navigation system it's in google maps it's the thing that gives you directions. Uh, and so the irony there, of course, is that this was originally developed to order robots around. It's now being used to direct humans. Trust um, a, a group of academics that are creating Shaky the Robot to make its first direction to the library as well. It seems appropriate. <laughs> and to be honest, I was thinking about my, the devices that I don't, and I was Googling to see if they were actually artificially intelligent instead of just like you know mathematical calculations. Because the first thing I typed in was... Is, is a calculator a form of artificial intelligence? And, and obviously the, the answer was no, but I was very interested to, 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 to see what your answer would be. Well, actually, um, one of the other first objects uh, I did own that, that had some AI in was actually a very high-powered calculator. So the very first AI project I worked on um, back in Edinburgh 30-plus um, years ago, the result of that project was, was a bunch of algorithms, very sophisticated algorithms that could solve really complex equations, trigonometric equations and simultaneous equations um, that you know, does require a little bit of intelligence, more than just crunching the numbers. And uh, we were quite proud that there was a button on, an, on one of the most advanced HP calculators. Those people who know this, scientific calculators will remember HP used to make the best scientific calculators. There was <laughs> a button that had the wonderful word solve on it that was actually calling our methods to solve these complex uh, uh, trigonometric uh, equations uh, in the HP calculator. So there was, there was a very sophisticated HP calculator that used some, some quite complex AI that, that uh, I helped contribute to. I tell you what, that would have been very handy for my maths A-level because it just to hit solve because maths definitely wasn't my um my strong point uh your, your most recent book is called 2062 because that's the date i understand that you and 300 of your colleagues predict that machines will be as capable as humans when you say as capable as humans what do you mean by that and should we be worried so i should point out that whilst the the average answer in this survey of 300 other experts around the planet working in ai was 2062 there was a huge variance in their answers it's not going to happen on july the 2nd at 4 p.m in 2062 we have we have no real idea exactly when it's going to happen but the interesting thing i think about the survey well it made a good title for a book the, the interesting thing about the survey was that none of them were saying it was going to take 10 years i have immense respect for the human brain and what we're trying to replicate in machines and and like most of my colleagues, I think it's, it's, a, it's a large mountain we still have to climb. We've got a long way to go. Machines um, aren't as capable in many respects as, as humans yet. Um, but equally, uh, very few of them said it was going to take more than 100 or 200 years. 
it's something that's plausible in our lifetimes and almost certain in our children's lifetime. 8%, I should point out, 8% of them did say it wasn't going to happen. But 92% of us, the majority of us, did say it was going to happen. If the history of science has taught us anything, it should be that we should have humility, that it would be terribly conceited to think that we couldn't build machines smarter than us. We, at the end of the day, are just biological machines. And every time that we thought we were special, that the sun went round the earth, we were wrong. Copernicus taught us that, that we were different than the apes. Uh, Darwin taught, taught us that. And so to think there's anything special about our intelligence, that it's not just uh, a certain amount of intelligence that evolution has equipped us with, is, I, I think, would be terribly conceited. And certainly the evidence we have so far is that if we pick narrow tasks, whether that be playing the ancient Chinese game of Go or translating Mandarin into English, doing particular narrow tasks, often we've been able to get machines to do those at superhuman level, to do them much quicker, much faster, much more accurately than humans. And so the ambition is to try and do all the things that we do that require intelligence as, uh, as well as uh, humans can be. And I imagine as once we can get machines to do them as well as us, that they'll likely do it better than us. They have a number of natural advantages and the machines are faster than us. We work at biological speeds. Our brain works in 10 or so hertz, uh, 10 or so instructions a second, whereas computers work in the gigahertz, millions and billions of instructions mm. a second. Uh, our brain is limited to 20 watts of power. It's the, it's the organ, interestingly enough, it's the organ that uses the most energy in our body. Our brains use more energy than our hearts. That's wow. 20 of the 60 watts that our, our body produces to, to keep us alive. A third of that's used to, to power our brain. That's why our brain's in our head. So it radiates all that excess heat that's generated. And that's all we can afford to, to, to devote to our, our brain. Um, we couldn't eat faster enough to, to consume any more energy. But um, computers aren't limited by any of that. If computers can use thousands of watts of power and we have almost... We don't have enough power on our laptop or on our phone, smartphone. Then we can tap into the cloud and, and vast data centers uh, that uh, almost have, provide us unlimited amounts of power. Computers have you know, almost unlimited amounts of memory these days. We we have only rather finite memories, and we're some of us are increasingly forgetful. And, mm -hmm. and with, so there's plenty of reasons to suppose that machines would have advantages over humans and machines could look at and this is the story of why machines have been more capable in many domains so far is machines can look at more data than humans why was yeah. it that alpha go got to be, play better go than than the best human masters of the game always well, because alpha go played more games of go than any human possibly could do in a lifetime um, it played millions and millions of games of go if that's the only thing you did your whole of whole of your life the only thing you ever did from the moment you woke up in the morning to the moment you fell asleep you wouldn't have played as many games of go yeah. and so alpha go got to be better at go because it had seen more go than a human possibly could do and it's seen everything possible um and so you know machines are going to have those sorts of advantages over us um, and every reason to suppose ultimately they're going to be smarter than us and that that is why I come back to the claim I made at the start. This is the justification for the claim I made at the start, that um, this is going to be a profound moment for humanity because we are the dominant species on the planet, for better or for worse, and sometimes it seems to be for worse, because we were the smartest, not because we were the fastest, not because we had the sharpest teeth or 
it was because we outthought the rest of the uh, animal kingdom um, and we got to the dominant position we were on the planet because of that. Uh, everything that we see around us is the product of our intelligence. And so if we have suddenly got something that's smarter than us, well, that is going to be a profound moment, hopefully a humbling moment, but hopefully mm. an enabling moment, a moment where we can use that intelligence to actually tackle some of the wicked problems, climate change, sustainability of our planet, all these sorts of um, medical problems like pandemics and coming up with new vaccines. Um, if we had some greater intelligence on the planet, well, then hopefully if we directed it well, we could use this to to help make the planet a better place. And of course, as, as you say, the robots are getting smarter and smarter and robots are having more goes at go than, than, than all of us. Um, of course, the conversation around oh, people's fear and the ethics of robotics um, comes into the general consciousness and dialogue, um, especially in the media. I know that you're very interested in you know, the ethical landscape in, in artificial intelligence. Um, how did this interest develop and how important do you think that is? It, it's something that's evolved over time. If I go back to, to when I started out uh, as a young PhD student, we were working on technologies that were so inadequate and it seemed so far away, the application of what we were doing um, from the laboratory out into people's lives, that there wasn't much consideration given to the ethics of what we were doing and the, the consequences of what we were doing because it seemed, um, it seemed too distant at the time. But in the last decade, that's completely changed. AI is starting to make important decisions in people's lives. It's starting to leave the laboratory. There are um, some tech companies out there that are investing huge amounts of money and changing our lives in interesting, sometimes not necessarily in always good ways. Um, and so in, in the last decade, I've become increasingly concerned about the direction of travel. And that the, there is, I think, this mistake that people make. They somehow think, they ask me, you know, well, Toby, what's going to happen in the future? And I keep on trying to remind people that the future is undecided. The future is what we decide it to be. Mm. It is the product of the choices we make today. And we frequently, with all other technologies, we make choices about how we let them into our lives so that we get the good without the bad. And there are plentiful good things that we can get from AI. Equally, and Hollywood's been very good at painting these pictures, there are plentiful poor things and bad things that will come out of AI if we don't do anything. If we, uh, And I think actually the problem is that that's the default outcome. If we sit on our hands and just let uh, the future happen to us, then the default outcome is, is probably quite pessimal quite poor um mm. but equally there there are many good things if we make the right choices um, and there are some applications of ai that i'm convinced we should we should outlaw whether that be the use of ai in warfare which i'm sure we'll come to shortly the use of ai for face recognition um, there are plentiful ways where perhaps handing decisions over to machines will not be a positive thing and we should perhaps leave those decisions to humans yeah thinking of the future there's a lot of discussion at the moment about the value of studying STEM versus humanities. Should we be focusing our educational resources on STEM to survive and thrive in a 2062 world? What skills do you think we need? Fantastic question. And, and, and really topical, as you, as you point out, that the, the government's made some, I think, um, very ill-advised choices or is trying to push through some legislation that's very ill-advised. I spent a lot of time in the last couple of years working with the Department of Education here 
trying to help them blue sky, well, what is the curriculum of the future going to be? What should we be teaching kids today? Because if kids in kindergarten today, they're going to be working in the second half of this century with mm. technologies we have yet to invent. So we have no idea what they're going to be. Um, and I mean, of course, education is not just about preparing people for work. It's about preparing people to be good citizens and to live good lives. Um, and I, I, you know, I think we should not think of education just as, a, as preparing us for work, but actually preparing us to be well-rounded citizens and individuals. But it is worth thinking about. One of the purposes of education is, you know, well, what are the jobs of the future? And if you look at, you know, all the studies, you look at all of the recommendations, it isn't just coding skills. Of course, if you can code, that's probably a pretty useful skill and will get you a pretty well-paid job these days. There's 100,000 unfilled jobs in IT in Australia today. And um, my students uh, have six-figure starting salaries that I would envy. Mm. But, um, I mean, the dirty secret, of course, is that in the future, computers are going to be programming themselves. That's the whole idea of machine learning. It's that the computer learns how to do the program itself. We give it lots of examples, lots of data, and it learns how to do the task. No one programmed it. We don't know how to program a computer to recognize a traffic light. And yet we've got cars driving around that now recognize traffic lights because we gave them lots of examples of traffic lights, stop signs and go signs, and told them these are what you need to be able to recognize. And like a human, it learned how to do those things. Um, and so increasingly, computers are going to program themselves. So what are the important skills? Well, they're actually often things like the soft skills. Um, there are emotional intelligence, our social intelligence, our creativity, our adaptability. All the things, of course, that the humanities tend to teach you, but the art, uh, that the sciences and engineering don't tend to teach you too well. Um, and so, actually, we should um, be doubling down, I think, at this point, on the humanities uh, and, and making sure that people have those really good soft skills. Because at the end of the day, machines will do some of these tasks very well and we won't get humans to do them. And it will be the things that are uniquely human, those human skills and those human relationships that become most important. Well, I'm very glad to hear because it validates my English literature degree completely, I think. Unfortunately, I didn't get the six-figure um, starting salaries. Uh, but, you know, I could, I can. it's not too late to change, is it? Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by artificial intelligence but perhaps because it's the only form i have um and i just couldn't decide what to ask you so i've created this um little wheel of misfortune um for the listeners of this podcast it's a paper plate-esque type thing with an arrow pinned on it and rather embarrassingly low tech for for this um type of conversation james i'm not sure i like the idea of misfortune <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the, well, the wheel of fun or something to really use another f word well yeah exactly I, I, perhaps i should have said that but there are some um uh, just just a warning i've put some sexy and dangerous topics on on this wheel uh -huh. so i wonder if if i give it a spin I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on artificial intelligence and ethics on, on the topics that we land on okay throw throw the dice one of my favorite books was the dice man okay here goes okay so our first topic is health and that seems like a, a good place to start at the moment, appropriate in the midst of a pandemic. I've, I've read a few articles recently about how AI can help us navigate some aspects from the health perspective, for example, temperature checks and biometrics. What are some of the ethical implications, perhaps, in this area? Yes, I think when people ask me about 
about the good uses of AI, I think probably in the long term, health is going to be the area that's going to have that one of the most profound, important impacts upon our lives. Now, medicine today is still living pretty much in the 19th century. You get the same, everyone gets the same medical treatment. Everyone gets, even men and women get the same medical treatment, even though that's absurd from a biochemical perspective. We know that the biochemistry of women is completely different to the biochemistry of men, and yet they, we get prescribed the same drugs and the same courses of treatment. And so with artificial intelligence, we have the promise of a future where medicine will be personalized. That uh, combined, of course, with the fact that we can sequence people's genes um, at, at modest cost nowadays, and and not only can we read people's genotypes, soon we're going to be writing people's genotypes and removing um, genetic problems. Um, and so that is going to be an immense change, where you get individual personalized medicine that that works for for your particular biochemistry and genotype. Um, and different to, to what everyone else is, and and it will help live us, help us live longer, healthier lives. Um, and, and we're starting to see some of that technology being applied uh, in COVID. We've seen that from both the diagnosis and used uh, AI is being used. For example, the uh, the Chinese um, have already got a, a system that can scan X-rays quicker, cheaper and more accurately than human doctors to spot the distinctive signs um, the, of, of the damage to, the, to people's lungs that uh, the, the virus causes. Through to therapy, um, there's um, large data sets being collected of um, the therapy people are being given uh, in ICUs around the world, working out well, what is the best possible course of treatment, who are the people, who are the patients that should be monitored most closely or most likely to, to suffer a severe reaction to the, the virus. Uh, through to therapy, um, AI is being used to help discover new drugs, um, to synthesize new drugs that, that may have uh, therapeutic uh, imp impact upon uh, this uh, terrible disease. So, um, you know, through all stages, all, all parts of the life cycle of, of treatment and, and, and cure, AI offers the potential. And um, as, as, uh, as we move forwards, um, increasingly we'll see AI being used in these sorts of settings. Um, there are, of course, you, as your question hinted at, there are you know, lots of ethical consequences. But most of those are, aren't new ones. Medicine, biomedicine actually is, is the area in which Ethical issues um, have been very well thought out over the last hundred years. We actually have very good protocols, very good ethical principles. You know, maleficence don't do any harm. Beneficence, um, you know, you've got to do things in the benefit of the patient. Um, autonomy, you have to respect the patient's autonomy. Uh, and and um, justice, you've got to treat people fairly. You can't be careful about discriminating against people of different gender or race or whatever. So those medical principles, which have been well-developed and applied to the development of, of drugs and other therapies in the past, are exactly the same ethical principles that we need to apply um, to the application of AI into medicine. Yeah, and I, I'm really interested when you say um, AI has the potential to personalise medicine, because I, I read a fantastic BBC Future article recently on gender in health and the fact that most drugs have always been tested 
like you, you know using male genotype and stuff like that so yes. white male college students who are the people who they can get to sign up to the drug trials i hope ai can can help change change that um with all of this information that could be out there is there a freedom of of medical experience i guess versus security issue oh of course yeah you're, you're putting your finger on a huge great issue which is that that um for especially for example once once we're collecting lots more data because we're all connecting ourselves up to to devices that are monitoring our our vital signs our heartbeat our blood pressure we're potentially having our genotype read that information of course is a great personal has great personal benefit you can personalize the medicine towards towards exactly what you are but equally um, it can be weaponized against you. We, do we want to wake up in a world in which you can no longer get health insurance um, at an affordable rate because your because your health insurer has decided that you've got um, a set of bad genes that are going to expose them to some expensive um, courses of, of treatment later in your life that you're going to be a, a real cancer risk or a heart disease risk or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so this is why we actually do have to really legislate um, because um, from an economic sense, from a, it makes every sense for the, for the health company or the insurance company to charge you what it's going to cost them. But we actually have decided, we have you know, various fairness criteria within our society that says, no, um, insurance is an umbrella that we cover the weakest in our society, the people at risk, um, because it would be catastrophic for those people. And we actually believe in a just, fair society where everyone gets an equal crack of the whip. Um, and we're already seeing this. So, for example, in Europe today, it is illegal to price insurance products based on gender, health insurance, um, life insurance, car insurance. That has some interesting consequences. I mean, it used to be that you could charge men and women differently um, insurance rates. Um, and so it used to be that women got cheaper car insurance because men are worse drivers. Uh, we have more accidents. You know, it's our testosterone. It's our, it's our whatever it is. But but we, if you just have to look at the statistics, it's very clear men are worse drivers. But now uh, men and women are charged the same insurance rate. So women now are subsidizing men's bad driving. These are, these highlight though the sort of challenging ethical choices we have to make about well, what does it mean for us to have a just fair society when we can actually work out. Who is going to get breast cancer? Who is going to get bowel cancer? Who is going to have heart disease? Um, who is going to die an early death? How are we going to make sure that the world is fair and just? And what does that exactly mean when the algorithms can start to tell us these things? Wow, scary stuff. I'm, I'm not sure I'd like to know that. Um, but I think we should spin the wheel again. Um, here we go. All right. Second topic is quite simply um, guns. I know you're very passionate about banning offensive autonomous weapons. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your research and activism in, in that area? Sure. Um, I mean, so for about the last half a dozen years, I've become what, I, what I've just realized is an accidental advocate. I never set out with the goal of doing this, but I realized that it was important that scientists inform the conversation. This is not like all these conversations, like the one we were just having about medicine and insurance, this is not a conversation that technology should be having. This is a conversation for the whole of society because it's about what sort of world do we want to wake up in. 
And again, I return to the idea that Hollywood has painted a very good picture of the possible futures that we could end up in. Um, and it will, in 50 or 100 years' time, look like Terminator if we're not careful. It, 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 not, not in the near future, but, but um, and we're still a long way away from those, those sorts of robots. But, but already, very primitive autonomous weapons are being developed and now deployed. If you go to the Turkish-Syrian border, there are some fully autonomous kamikaze drones that carry explosives that crash in and kill people use face recognition to identify their targets. That's the face, same sort of face recognition software that's in your smartphone that opens the phone for you. That is being used to target and kill people on the Turkish-Syrian border. So we're already actually now woken up in this world. And so I felt um, the last half, half a dozen years, it was really important to explain to people where this technology was taking us, how capable, in the problem today is how incapable it is, all of us have seen the errors. All of us have struggled, perhaps, with opening our smartphone with our face to realize that we shouldn't be handing over decisions about who lives and who dies to machines today. And I don't think possibly ever in the future. It takes us to a, to, into new moral territory and ones where machines don't have a, a moral compass. They're not moral beings. They're not conscious. They're not sentient. They're not, you can't punish them. They don't have our empathy. Um, and the, you know, there are a whole host of reasons why I think it would, and, and the technical reasons as well, it would destabilize um, many of the conflict zones around the world. It would take us to a very dark place and that we should be thinking seriously about whether we should be trying to regulate these technologies. And the United Nations, I'm pleased to say, is discussing this um, tomorrow. In fact, uh, discussions uh, um, restart again tomorrow about what we should be doing. 30 nations have called for a preemptive ban. Um, that includes uh, the European Parliament, and so the African Union, so a significant chunk of the world. It does not include Australia. It doesn't include the United Kingdom. It doesn't include the United States or Russia. Interestingly, it does include China. China has called for a preemptive ban on the deployment, not, not the development, but the deployment of autonomous weapons. <laughs> so there are discussions going on, and I think this is a, a really important discussion and one where Actually, if you survey the public, um, latest survey of the public, Ipsos survey in 21 different countries, including Australia, um, the majority of those people surveyed um, supported the idea that we should be regulating autonomous weapons. The public uh, is, in my discussions in, in many different fora, speaking in the United Nations elsewhere, the public is certainly, um, when they understand what may, might be done in their name, are, are clearly against the idea um, because it would take us um, to, to what Hollywood, as I said, has, has painted a picture of a future which would be a very unpleasant one, and one where we could choose uh, not to go, because we have made that choice. Plentiful mm. technologies, biological weapons, chemical weapons, blinding lasers, cluster munitions, a whole host of things that we have decided we don't need to, to fight war with. We've got, we've got plentiful means of deterrence, F-15 fighters, uh, U.S. aircraft carriers, strike forces, and the like, um, to police the world with. We've got plenty of, of big sticks. Um, we don't need this as another means of deterrence. We've got plentiful means of deterrence. And these are the sorts of weapons that would be misused by terrorists, rogue states, and unfortunately used against civilian populations. Used, I mean, that's the history of, unfortunately, warfare increasingly its force in and amongst towns and cities. We see it that terribly today in Syria and elsewhere. Um, against civilian populations, and these would be the perfect weapons of terror that, that would follow whatever instruction, kill all the children, and would kill all the 
women, however terrible those instructions were. That's absolutely terrifying to um, to consider because I, I know from my using my own iPhone that it struggles to um, recognize me if I'm wearing a pair of sunglasses, for example. So yeah, we were in this in this terrible situation at the moment where where tech companies, Amazon, Facebook, IBM, have decided it's too dangerous and toxic to use this technology for um, for policing. Uh, moratoriums mm. and bans have, have recently been put in place um, against the use of face recognition by police forces. Um, a number of cities around the world, um, San Francisco, Boston, have, have prohibited its use. Uh, a large number of NGOs, um, Human Rights Watch, um, the United Nations have called for its uh, for, uh, for regulation of the use of of um, face recognition, and yet there is an arms company that's using face recognition in kamikaze drones that kill people. So it's too dangerous to use for policing, but it's it's acceptable use. Uh, by militaries. That's an absurd situation we find ourselves in. Well, we're drifting off the my, my uh, pinwheel topic of guns, but in, in terms of facial recognition, I've, I've, I've watched one of your talks before when you've spoken about the even the racial element of yeah. artificial intelligence as well and, 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 and opening phones for, for white faces but not black faces, for, for example. Yes, despite the fact that this is a well-documented problem, that the, the algorithms are racist that they don't tend to recognize black faces they don't tend to recognize female faces as well as 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 white male faces it's still a problem and despite all the effort that people have put into it um and it's it's not clear that um you know how long we're gonna uh, and recently we saw a case of someone who was falsely arrested and imprisoned because of this a black person that was arrested in in the state of michigan um, on the basis of uh, face recognition match, uh, an algorithm that matched him uh, to a database, and so we should we should be rightly concerned and and, and rightly um, not using this technology today um, because of the fact that we know it's going to be biased, discriminate against some groups, many of which have been discriminated against in the past, and therefore we should be very careful about it. Um, and that's a problem that we could possibly fix in the future. I can imagine, you know, I don't know, a decade's time or two decades' time. I don't know how long it will take. But we possibly, probably will come to a point where machines will be less biased and more accurate than humans at doing that face recognition. And so I, I'm always very careful that, that when we talk about this topic that to say that, well, we should ban face recognition because it's racist. Well, we should ban face recognition today because it's racist. But we should ban face recognition today also because of the place it takes us to it. it it will also take us to the orwellian surveillance state that authors like george orwell in 1984 warned us about that even if it could be made accurate um, at some point in the future that will still be a bad thing it will still be a, a technology a toxic technology that allows um, you to do things that humans could never do and as an example just to show people what can be done is worth giving an example from last year, which was there was a rock concert in China where the police were able to pick out a criminal that was um, a felon that, did, that they were trying to track down in a crowd of 50,000 people. Now, human eyes couldn't do that. You can't pick out a single face in a crowd of 50,000 people. But computer eyes can do that. And that takes us to a dangerous place where your ability to be out and about and and be anonymous in public is no longer possible. It used to be, if you went and protested about the climate emergency or Black Lives Matter, crowd of 10,000 people, you were essentially anonymous. There was no way you could be identified 
um, and no way you could be persecuted for protesting about the status quo. Well, now you can. And we see this today. You see this, uh, for example, when the protesters in Hong Kong evaded, invaded the airport. The first thing they did was they took the cameras down. Because that's the greatest threat to their right to protest. Um, and if we don't have that right to protest, then we can't change the status quo. And all of the things that we fought for for the last hundred years, all of those social injustices that we fought against, um, that, that black people should have the right to vote, that, that women should have the right to vote, all of those um, injustices that we fought for and have made uh, and corrected would never have happened if we weren't allowed to be able to go out and protest. Um, and we were... Uh, and the state was able to track us and, and surveil us. And so we should be very careful about how we let these technologies out um, and the surveillance state that we might end up in because writers and filmmakers have told us exactly the terrible world it will be when you can no longer do those sorts of protests. You guessed my um, next question, which was going to be drawing that into the um, the recent protests and the use of facial recognition in those. But we should be very careful. We, we should be very careful here in Australia because the government is pushing ahead with its plans to build a national biometric database. Anyone who's got a passport, anyone who's got a driving license, your photo and your biometrics are going to be in that database and. Um, various parts of government are going to be able to access and, and track you and trace you through that. What is it that makes AI biased? Is it the human working on the technology or the AI itself? A, a great question. There are so many sources of bias. It starts with um, the fact that AI is not a very diverse uh, field. Uh, unfortunately, it's mostly white males like myself. There are, there are not enough women. There are not enough People of color are not enough people of, of all other um, minorities are represented within the field. It's a very imbalanced field, um, and there's plentiful evidence that, that um, diverse teams are much better at dealing with, with making a product that, that is inclusive and doesn't have bias. It, it continues with biased data sets. It continues with biased algorithms. And then fundamentally, and this is a really important uh, idea that, that people need to understand, which is that there are, even if we tackle all those sources of bias, if we make sure that the teams building the stuff are inclusive, that the data sets are, are representative and that the algorithms don't have any implicit or explicit biases in them, there are just some problems that are by their very nature bias, that there is that bias cannot be eliminated. People ask me about, well, can you just not eliminate the bias? Well, no, there are some problems by their very nature. They are biased. Um, the old-fashioned name for machine learning was inductive bias. If I have to select a small number of CVs of people to call for an interview, and I don't want that to be biased, well, it is biased. It's a small number out of a big, big number. That is a bias. We want it to be biased to those people who are most worthy of position, most capable of doing the job. We don't want it biased against their sex or gender or race, whatever it is. But we're selecting a small number out of a big set. That is a bias. And we just have to work out, does that respect the norms and values of our society? If we're, if we're looking at a small number of individuals whose welfare payments we should be investigating as suspicious, that's a bias. We want it to be biased towards those people who are most likely to be committing welfare fraud. If we are selecting a small number of people to increase their insurance premiums, that's a bias. We don't want it to be biased to those people who are least able to pay and are 
being picked out because of um, their race or their sex or whatever it is that we decided insurance premiums shouldn't be decided on. It should be decided upon risk. Um, and so the very nature of those tasks, picking a small number out of a big set, is a bias. And we just have to ask, uh, is it respecting um, the values of our society? And this is why, actually, we're having all these conversations, because these were things that we never precisely defined in the past in many settings. These were things that were left a bit hand-wavy and fuzzy, which was fine before we tried to program machines. And the problem with programming machines is that they're very precise objects that require very precise instructions. And so we have to work out in advance very precisely, well, what is it? How would it be for this decision to be unbiased, to be not sexist, not racist, or or not ageist, or whatever it happens to be? Um, And so it's making these challenging societal conversations quite precise by asking people to program them i'm going to spin the wheel well speaking of cvs the the next topic is work um how long have i got toby never mind this covid recession when's a robot going to take my job well that's easy answer 2062 it's off the cover of the book just to make it clear how little time you've got i think there's a a misunderstanding in many of these discussions around the disruptive impact that AI automations can have on people's work. It's going to be disruptive, and so we should be having these important conversations. Uh, but many of these conversations forget that technologies invent new jobs. So while some jobs disappear, new jobs get created. And that's been the history of certainly of technology so far, the last 100 years since the Industrial Revolution. We've, we've destroyed lots of jobs. No one you know, no one's got the job of, of being, you know, um, a blacksmith ho- shoeing the horses that pull all the carts these days. Very few people are blacksmiths anymore um, because we've got uh, the internal combustion engine and that replaced all the horses and all the people involved in jobs looking after the horses, along with all the horses, are now out of work. But we created lots of new jobs in factories and offices that now employ those people. And we created far more jobs, actually, in the past because in the world's population is historical high levels, and until recently, employment was at historical low levels, and so lots of jobs were created um, to employ all those uh, all those new people. But that's, of course, no guarantee that that will be true going forwards. And you know, one thing is different this time: if machines are uh, literally as capable, not intellectually as humans, then there's a real question as to well, what's left for humans? And I think there are plentiful things left for humans, not because machines won't necessarily be better than. Mm. humans are doing most things is that we'll value humans we'll value um the human touch we already see this in hipster culture we value things that are touched by the human hand um economists would have us believe market forces will actually get us to value those things and we see that in the art market we see that in the artisan cheese and homemade bread and things like that we value things increasingly where we know the human story behind them, where there is a human story. It's funny that you mentioned that because I read an article, I think it was in The Atlantic um, recently on on the pandemic and how it's created almost a retro future in yes. which people people turn to like there were the absences. You couldn't find flour on the shelves, for example, to, for home baking um, because people wanted to make their own bread, their own cookies and, and look for those sort of diversions and comforts. Um, but at the same time, we're embracing technology. So, you know, grand and grandmas were getting iPads to stay in contact with their family and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think our future will be increasingly Victorian. It will look, it will go back to, to, to many of the things that we used to do before we 
um, we'll see you know, mass automation and, and mass production as a, as a blip, and we'll end up with personalization and, and handmade and artisan as things that we can afford. The necessities of life, of course, will be cheap because they'll be mass produced by machines. But all the other things, the, the things that we'll, that we'll value more, that we'll be willing to pay mm-hmm. more, will, will be those handmade things that are, that, where we can talk to the person. I mean, the other thing is, of course, is, is the emotional connect um, that will be, you know, all people who are involved in people-facing jobs are quite safe because whilst we can get machines to do some of those things, we will value human contact more. We pay more for human contact. We already do. Um, we can we can build a machine that makes a better cup of coffee than most baristas, mm. but we pay for a barista because the barista is going to crack a joke, flirt with you, remember you when you walk in the store. That's that human contact that we're willing to pay extra mm. for. And, You've been to my coffee shop, <laughs> and the same with salespeople or CEOs. You know, I'm told the most important job of uh, most important characteristic of a CEO is their emotional intelligence. The machines mm. don't have any of that yet, and it's not clear if they have. And if they, even if they do get that, well, we'll just value each other. We value human relations because we're social animals. We, we like talking to other people and hanging out with other people much more than we do with, with anonymous robots. Mm. Uh, in the Fin Review, Financial Review yesterday, there was a headline that says Amazon launches giant robot-filled center in Sydney. And I did see that although... There will be robots weighing about 50 kilos um, that lift our storage cubes for us. It will actually create a number of, of new jobs. There is though, a huge great issue, which is about how we reskill people. But may, maybe there will be just as many jobs. But those people who used to be the people who are working in the warehouse, who used to go and, and pick in warehouses, those people's jobs will be taken for sure by robots because robots will do it 24-7. They won't get... It won't hurt their back. They'll be much cheaper. Um, they won't unionize and demand wage rises every year. Um, and so those people's jobs will be replaced. And if those people don't have many other skills, then we have to ask ourselves, well, how are we going to support those people to find new vocations and, and to find meaning and, and purpose and, and income in their lives? Because I, those people... Um, I, you know, I do worry that you know we will be divided. There will be a digital divide between those who have the skills, who went to university and adaptable and can and move and run with the machines, and those whose skills get replaced and don't necessarily have new skills. I mean, I joke, you know, that the newest job on the planet is an Uber driver. That is one of the shortest-lived jobs on the planet because Uber is trying to build autonomous taxis. The most expensive thing in the Uber is the guy or girl driving the taxi. And Uber can only make money and only justify its expensive valuation if they can keep more of the income, if they can get that person out of the, out of the driving seat and have a robot drive you. That will mean the Ubers are much cheaper. So for most of us, that will be a great benefit. But if you are earning your income as a taxi driver or an Uber driver, you have to ask yourself, well, what job am I going to be doing in 10 years' time? Because very few people are going to be earning their income driving an Uber in 10 or 20 years' time. I do joke, of course, you know, there's all these different flavors of Uber, right? Uber eggs, Uber eats, Uber poor, right? There'll be, a, there'll be one special flavor of Uber, you know, called Uber chauffeur, where you pay extra to have someone who comes and sits in the car with you, has a chat with you, opens the door, carries your luggage to the boot, you know, and, and then opens the door when you get there. That will be the premium service. But of course, the Uber driver, Uber chauffeur won't be driving. It'll still be a machine driving. 
but there'll be this premium product when you're you know when you're out on the town pushing the razzle and want to show off a bit uh, where you pay for the person with the hats but apart from that uber won't be employing any people yeah even better if they were a barista as well fourth topic is a bit of a cheeky one it's love robots <laughs> so uh, we keep trying to keep it tasteful so there are i guess there are more ways of connecting and communicating via technology than than ever before now yet loneliness is on the rise we're experiencing like somewhat of an attachment crisis informing and maintaining intimate relationships could could robots be the answer <laughs> Well, there's certainly things they can contribute. I hope they're not the whole answer because I think that would take us to a, not to the sort of world that many people, myself included, would like. Um, if you ask most AI researchers what their favorite AI movie is, almost all of them, to a man or woman, and most of them, as I mentioned, are men, but all of them would probably say, most of them will say the movie Her, which is about mm. the relationship we'll have. We are increasingly spending time conversing with machines and we will end up with all of us will have a personal assistant. There's, um, there's a wonderful way to predict the future, um, which is to look at what rich people have got. You know, rich people have got personal assistants who manage their social lives, book restaurant tables and hairdressers for them and do their banking and all those other things. And that's what the future we're all going to have. Uh, of course, we can't afford to employ humans to do that for most of us, um, but we'll have you know, intelligent assistants, uh, you know, Alexa on steroids that can do all that for us, and those services are starting to appear. You can can already get uh, um, Siri to, to to book a restaurant table or a hairdresser for you in the U.S., and that's being rolled out around the world now. So increasingly, we will have these assistants, and they'll know us better than our spouses. They'll they'll know everything we buy, all our preferences, all the things we do. So they we will start to feel quite intimate towards them. They'll know everything about us. Um, and you know, people will get, I imagine, will start to get somewhat attached to these machines. And people do already get attached to machines. People get attached to their cars. So imagine what it's going to be like when actually you're having a conversation with this thing and it's able to, to satisfy your requests and, and anticipate your requests. That's going to be um, you know, quite an interesting uh, occurrence. But I, but I hope that, don't, that won't take away, at the end of the day, from our personal relationships because... Machines don't have our emotional lives. They, they aren't, of course, I mean, in strict sense, they're not emotional. They don't have our biochemistry. And that's why um, even if we can get machines that will write poems or compose music, it won't ever, I think, speak to us in the same way that humans, human composers, human poets have spoken to us because machines will never fall in love. Machines will never lose a loved one machines will never die mortality is something that only humans have love is something that only humans have and so machines will never speak to us the way that other humans will speak to us and so i don't think we'll ever really fall in love with them in the way that we fall in love with other humans and we'll never they'll never really relate to us the art that they I make suppose they'll never be irrational almost no, you can you can make machines to be irrational you can you can say okay at this point, don't do the rational thing. You can program explicit irrationality, rational irrationality. It's a, um, you know, people always joke to me, you know, well, of course, machines will never forget things. Say, well, you can just program them to forget things if you want. I always think, you know, at the end of the day, they, that's the one thing that uh, Yuval Harari got wrong in his book, Homo Deus, is that we're not going to become gods. We're not going to become immortal and, and infinitely rational. That's what machines are going to become. 
and where machines are. Um, and the thing that's going to be most important to us are those profoundly human characteristics that define us and separate us from the intelligent machines. And that's our mortality. That's our ability to love. That's our ability to lose. That is our emotional richness. That's the thing that actually, if you think about it, that quantifies the human experience. When you woke up this morning, you didn't wake up thinking, oh, I'm intelligent. You woke up and it was your consciousness, your experience of life, of pleasure, of pain, of happiness, of sadness that defines you, that is, is the experience of being alive when you open your eyes, that is what it is to be human. Um, and mm. it's not our intelligence, and it's a useful product that we've got, a useful byproduct of, of our brains, a useful part of it, but it's all those other things, and the machines, I suspect, will never have any of those. Mm. And and I think that is a fantastic thought to um to to end on that and the fact that we are the product of the choices we make today um that you said that you said earlier. Let's choose wisely. Yeah, let's choose wisely. Um so I'd really like to say Toby, I couldn't think of a better person to have my first remote recording of a podcast <laughs> with than you. I, I think it is very appropriate. One, one day I'll be just telling my robot to do the conversation for me. <laughs> it wouldn't be the same experience for me. So thank you. Thank you very much for your time. It's much appreciated. It's been, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. I've enjoyed the conversation. And please keep safe, everyone. You've been listening to MISC with me, James Hill, and guest, Professor Toby Walsh.